Well, welcome to episode number 331 of the Hunt Back Country podcast. Today, my guest is Bruce L. Smith. He is the author of a book on mountain goats that I have absolutely enjoyed, and it is called Life on the Rocks. I speak with Bruce today about mountain goats, just to better understand the species, their history, their current population, habitat, behavior, and much more. One thing I find fascinating about mountain goats is that they do live such a remote and removed life. We don't encounter them much. Most hunters themselves aren't very familiar with the species. And so there's this mystique about them that I have so enjoyed learning more about as I prepare to hunt them for the first time uh, this coming fall. And so in this conversation with Bruce, we really dive into the species. And even if you've never been interested or considered a mountain goat hunt before, I would encourage you to tune in and hear more about these fascinating animals. I know that you'll learn something from it. As always, guys, we appreciate you tuning in. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback for us, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Right now, though, let's get into this conversation. Here's Bruce. Bruce, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry podcast. I'm very excited to chat with you today. Well, thanks for the invitation. I had picked up your book, uh, Life on the Rocks, which uh, subtitle A Portrait of the American Mountain Goat, uh, and is one of a handful of books that I've been looking at um, on mountain goats. And it is both very informational uh, as well as just a gorgeous book. It's filled with photography. It's full color. uh, And you did both the writing and the photography. And you have a vast... Uh, decades really of experience with mountain goats that we'll talk about. Uh, so that's how this episode came together. But yeah, to go ahead and kick it off, um, if you can just share kind of any personal introduction or background or whatever you want to share to give the listeners some context for who we're talking to right now. Sure. For those who don't know me at all, I was raised in the Midwest. I'm a transplant to Montana, like so many of us are. Um, I was uh, Born and raised in rural Michigan and uh, spent my formative years mucking around in marshes and traipsing through the woods near our house, um, out on the lake nearby in a 12-foot rowboat until we finally got a motor when I was about 14 years old and I could could get around a little better. Uh, So, and I've often wondered if I hadn't grown up in a rural area where I spent so much time outside, outside in nature, outside um, uh, around wild things, hunting and fishing. If I would have ended up being an architect or something else, but uh, I was fortunate uh, where I grew up. Yeah. And then when did you make that transition out west to Montana? Well, I went to a college in my hometown at a community college. I didn't have any kind of financial support to be able to go to more than just the local two-year college. And then after my sophomore year, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. I probably would have done that after high school, but because of a medical issue, I couldn't. I wouldn't have been accepted. And so uh, I enlisted in the Marines in 1968, served a combat tour, 
in Vietnam. And uh, when I got back and was discharged, then I did what I had planned to do um, way back when I was 18. I drove out to Montana and finished my uh, degree in wildlife biology at the University of Montana. And uh, went straight on from the bachelor's to a master's degree. And that's when I uh, studied mountain goats for the first time. So that's, you have uh, your education uh, in wildlife sciences. And then you spent, I believe you said 30 plus years. uh, I think most of which, if not all of which, feel free to correct me, but for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, as a wildlife manager and scientist, correct? That's right. Yeah, I... I uh, worked seasonal jobs at first after I got my master's. I worked for the Forest Service while I was going to college in Missoula um, for the biologist on the Lolo National Forest, doing some pretty cool things. In fact, I thought I was going to do my master's degree on woodpeckers. Oh, really? From woodpeckers to mountain goats. Interesting. So when you when you say you did your master's and had a focus on mountain goats, how does that work? You Do you... Uh, petition, I guess, the school of, hey, here is the species that would like to focus on and study as part of this master's program, or how is that structured? Yeah, that's a good question, because oftentimes graduate students don't get to choose the project that they work on, because there has to be funding. And most of the time, their advisors, committee members, um, primarily the committee chairman, is the one who's getting funding for a project. And The priorities um, for those projects may come through the state wildlife agency, or maybe they get funding from, you know, some national organization, the National Wildlife Federation or some other source. Maybe it comes from a federal agency. So students often don't get to choose the projects. Maybe they get to choose from a couple of projects. But in my case, uh, when I was a senior at, at Montana, I um, I got really interested in mountain goats then. Actually, I did as a junior. My my roommate um, at the university during my junior year was from Great Falls, and he was heading back home at Thanksgiving. This was in way back in 1971. Um, I'm only 40 years old, right? Uh, <laughs> he was heading back to. Um, his parents' place in Great Falls to have Thanksgiving dinner, and he asked me if I wanted to come along, and it seemed like a good option rather than sitting at an empty campus. And uh, so we drove up to Great Falls, and I spent three days there at his house with his parents, wonderful family. Uh, We spent a day up on the Sun River Game Range, poking around, looking at elk and mule deer and bighorn sheep. Um, And that was one of my very first exposures to all of this wildlife in the West, Um, at least in-depth exposures. And at his house, he had mounted heads of every large mammal, just about every large mammal native to Montana. And he'd gotten them all when he was in his teens. in his bedroom, there was a big horn, there was a pronghorn, there was a huge mule deer, oh, atypical whitetail that was gigantic, but the elk was so big it had to be over the fireplace because it was a seven by seven. I mean, all of this stuff was just eye-popping. But the one, one animal that just struck me, and I had never seen it before, never seen a picture, 
was a mountain goat, that a shoulder mount that he had in his bedroom. And I just thought that was the most magnificent animal I had ever seen. And so on the trip back to Missoula, I just started peppering him with questions. He had gotten that mountain goat when he was, I think, 16 or 17, back in the Bob Marshall on the Chinese wall, uh, which is a feat in itself to get back there and then be able to pull off a hunt. But he told me that the closest goats to Missoula were just south of town in the Selway Bitterroot Wilderness area. And so I began spending every weekend in the Selway Bitterroot hiking in that winter and uh, finding mountain goats. And I ended up doing a senior thesis on mountain goats uh, in that same area. And then I was determined to turn that into a master's program. And with my eventual advisor to be, my chairman, we got funding for it through the state. And it turned out it was the second highest priority research project that Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, which was Montana Fishing Game then, had of all wildlife and fishery studies in the state. So it just kind of came together very fortuitously for me. Mm, that's fascinating. So you're, you obviously then through your master's, that's when you really began to study them. Uh, and I would assume that included some field time, but then that translated into the decades to follow and the time that you spent with Fish and Wildlife Service. Talk just a bit about, I mean, how much time have you spent in the field observing goats and maybe describe some of what that looked like for uh, myself and then the listeners who don't fully understand whether it was for your master's education or for your years of service that followed professionally. Like, what does that look like when we talk about in the field observation? Because I know you've done a ton of it. Is it, is it sitting down and just putting in a lot of hours and taking notes and just kind of give us some information on that. Okay. And I'll try and be brief because I could talk about that for a long time. <laughs> um, so when I was doing the senior thesis, I would just hike the Selway Bitterroot on the Montana side. If people aren't familiar with it, there are a series, I think 26 canyons that flow from West to East. Uh, the crest of the Bitterroot mountains um, runs almost due no north to due south. And then coming off from it, kind of like tines on a pitchfork, are all of these parallel canyons that flow to the east and then dump into the Bitterroot River over by Hamilton and um, Lolo and, and Darby. So it was in each one of these canyons that I was hiking in, uh, snowshoeing in, skiing in to try and spot mountain goats, count mountain goats, and classify them by age and sex. Um, I didn't know anything about mountain goats except what I was reading, and I was reading everything I could find. But coincidentally, when I was doing my master's, so was someone else at the university doing their master's on mountain goats. I mean, the odds of that are just so improbable. And it was Douglas Chadwick, who's a well-known writer, published many books. He's written for the Geographic Society. He was doing his master's on mountain goats in the Swan Range, south of Glacier Park. Hmm. And um, so I invited Doug to come down with me the first 
few times that I went into the Sawai Bitterroot and um, he, he gave me a kickstart, how to identify goats as far as the age and sex of these animals. Uh, so I knew what I was looking at. We would both have spotting scopes and binoculars, of course. We'd spot uh, goats way up on the cliffs. We're in the creek bottom and the goats are way above us generally anywhere from 800 to 1500 feet of elevation up. And uh, once we spotted them, get the spotting scope focused in on them, then he would point out to me the different characteristics that he was using in his study to uh, tell nannies from billies, to tell kids from yearlings and so forth. So I did that um, every weekend pretty much uh, during my senior year, during the winter, turned that into uh, the master's degree, which started in March of 73. I graduated from the university with a bachelor's in March, and 10 days later, I was doing my master's. And after that, when I was doing my, my master's research, which in, was two and a half years of field work, um, I extended it and went a year longer than most master's students do because I just felt like I needed to get more and more data, wanted to know more. Um, I was going in at first with a pup tent in the winter and, and trying to camp in these different canyons where I would be three, four, five, six miles back, snowshoeing and, and skiing back there, hiking when I could. And uh, it was just taking so much time for maintenance um, that I knew I needed to do something different in my second and third winter. So. There was one canyon, as you read about in Life on the Rocks, that was excluded from the wilderness area when um, the Selway Bitterroot was demarcated in 1964, one of the first 12 wilderness areas to be set aside in the lower 48. And that, that small gash into the Bitterroots was because there was a two-track road there going to a reservoir that was over five miles back. So we hauled a small uh, slide-in truck camper up there almost to the reservoir, cut a track up through the lodge pole on the south side of the, of the creek, dumped it off on a pile of logs that we uh, had and stuffed some straw bales underneath it. Uh, we had a 100-pound propane tank. That's what I heated the two burner stove and the little space heater with. And that's where I was spending my days and weeks is in that little camper. And because I was working in multiple canyons, if I went somewhere else, I would have to hike or snowshoe out of there to my truck that I had left where the road was still plowed at the end of the plowed road, drive around to another canyon, ski and snowshoe in four or five miles, come back out and then drive back to Fred Burr Canyon where my camper was. And then generally in the dark, go back in to where I was spending the night. So I had long days. I was doing lots of miles uh, through the snow in order to do surveys of goats on all these different canyons because each canyon had its own small group of goats. They, they would intermix in the summer and probably were interbreeding uh, in the fall. But I found by radio collaring goats and observing ones that had unique horns and other 
characteristics where I could identify them, that they were faithful to the winter canyons. And so each canyon had its own group of goats, and I could keep track over those three years changes in the population. That is fascinating. And so I don't even know that you could estimate it, but how, how much time do you think you've spent just in observation? I, I really don't know. I mean, I've never tried to keep track. Um, during those two and a half years, I spent three winters and springs, and you can figure five days a week okay. uh, back, and then I would come out, get a resupply, be sure I stopped at the bakery on the way out, got some real food, and then uh, went back home and uh, my little uh, place in Missoula and did what I had to do uh, with me, you know, summarizing notes and uh, meeting with advisors and that sort of thing, resupply and go back in. So there was three winters of that. And then I spent one summer and fall um, in 74 from mid-May until I got snowed out in late October. Every week I was in the high country trying to observe and study these goats on their summer ranges. So I had that. And then since then, I have spent, I haven't missed a year where I haven't gone into the backcountry somewhere and photographed mountain goats because I've taken lots of photographs over the years. Yeah. And the, as I mentioned before, the book is gorgeous and full of amazing photography. So uh, even if folks want to get it for that reason alone, just to flip through it, uh, and it is a great read, but the photography alone is worth it. Um I don't know how to ask this question. So I'm going to try and take a thought in my head and, and put it at you in a way that you can answer it. You've spent so much time observing, studying mountain goats. And obviously that much of that has been very uh, scientific, meaning, you know, many of the things you just described about understanding their populations and interactions and use of terrain and habitat and how they return to it and et cetera, et cetera. But for you personally, because you obviously have a passion and this interest in mountain goats, what's one of the things, especially from those called those few years where you had the uh, that intense time in the field, what's one of the things that just stands out to you personally that you learned, observed, appreciated, or kind of deepened your personal uh, interest in mountain goats, maybe separating it from just the call it scientific data collection and observation? I don't know if that's a fair question. You know, I think it's cumulative spending all that time um, with goats. Um, and it could, could be any species, but, you know, other biologists that I know and ones that you've probably talked to or know yourself, um, if they have spent a lot of time with one particular species, you just develop some sort of deep connection with that animal as you come to know it. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I wrote Life on the Rocks. I mean, the seed was there way back from the 70s. I knew I wanted to write a book about mountain goats because there were none in the 1970s. There wasn't one. And so I wanted to be able to share what I had learned and the fascination I had with the animal with other people. Because mountain goats live out of sight, out of mind in these remote, rugged, high mountain areas. And few Americans, 
ever have seen a mountain goat. Very few. If you polled people across the U.S., a tiny minority would have ever seen a mountain goat in the wild. So I wrote Life on the Rocks to acquaint more people with this remarkable but unfamiliar species. And the more conservation reason why I did that is it's only those species that people know something about that they tend to care about. And species without that personal connection to people receive little conservation attention. And we can, you know, there are so many species out of nine to 10 million species in the world, most people only really identify with a few of those. And I wanted the mountain goat to be one of those. Um, of all of North America's large mammals uh, species, it's probably less well known and certainly less was written about it than any other. And so with the book's photographs and the written message, I hope to make an effort to change that. I obviously, I obviously am fond of mountain goats. I'm passionate about them, but it's largely because they are so unique. Um, there's nothing else on the continent that's really quite like them. Uh, people will think of doll sheep or stone sheep or bighorns, but they're not even closely related to those animals. And in fact, their behavior is quite different. And so the life that they've carved out you know, through natural selection, um, makes them something that is so unique, it needs to be cherished. And uh, by trying to reach people with writing and doing speaking events and so forth, I'm hoping, and others, and I'm not the only one, but I'm hoping that we can get more people to sort of take special interest in them. Yeah. Well, I hope this conversation uh, does that for some of the listeners as well. So, um you mentioned the uniqueness of mountain goats, which is something I wanted to talk about. And I've been fascinated even as I learn more about their uh, background. And even if you approach things from their taxonomy, which again, I'm not, uh, I'm not educated there, but speak to even, are they even really goats, right? From a taxonomy perspective, like what are they're related to how are they different from other species that they get some uh, comparisons to not necessarily behaviorally, but from that kind of scientific taxonomy perspective first. Sure. Um, you're right. They're not, they're not true goats. Um, they're more appropriately called goat antelopes because they have characteristics of both uh, species of the true goats and of the antelopes. Um, but they are neither. So their taxonomy is this, um, just briefly. They're in the family Bovidae. Bovidae includes the cattle, the sheep, the goats, and the antelopes. Then from family, you go to subfamily, further split up. And they're in the family Caprini, which includes the true goats and the sheep. But as I said, they're not true goats. There's a tribe, a subdivision underneath Caprini called the Rupa Caprini. And translated from the Greek, Rupa Caprini means rock goats. So in that group of Rupa Caprids, there are the mountain goat and just a very few other species of animals. 
And all the other ones either live in Asia or Europe. They're the Gorels and the Siros of Asia, and then the Chamois of Europe. Those are the mountain goats' closest relatives. They're all across the Pacific or the Atlantic, depending on which way you go, in the old world. It's the only one that evolved over on the Himalayan plateau and made it across the Bering Land Bridge during the Pleistocene to the New World, like so many of our species, like moose and, and elk and black bears and so forth. So um, it's world separated from its closest relatives. Um, and it has um, a unique set of characteristics, the simple horns, uh, a very fragile skull, and a few other things that make it more primitive than the true goats and the sheep, all the sheep species. Um, it, it also um, probably has only been here for maybe 40,000 years coming across when the glaciations were still ongoing, uh, crossing the land bridge, because at that time, so much of the Earth's water was locked up in ice that the oceans were about 300 to 400 feet lower than they are now. And we think, we think that it probably spent the much of the remaining part of the ice age south of the glaciers um, in the continental United States. Uh, fossils have been found as far south as Nevada, California, southern Colorado, even northern Mexico. Um, but that was a smaller species. Instead of Oriamnos americanus, it was Oriamnos harringtoni. Um, we assume the mountain goat, as we know it today, was also down there. But mountain goats didn't leave us many fossils at all because of where they lived. Um, they just lived in places where, where their remains weren't easily fossilized. Um, more recent information shows they might have also been uh, on the islands off Southeast Alaska. There was a refugium there that they may have been able to uh, survive the ice age until, you know, about 11,000 years ago when all these massive glaciers, continental glaciers were in retreat. The only close relative that, or I should say the closest relative that the mountain goat has in North America isn't the doll sheep or the bighorn. It's not closely related to any, to either of those or the stone sheep. Its closest relative um, based upon its genetics is the muskox. That's interesting. Yeah. Does that association with sheep, do you think, is that... Um, because they share some habitat at times, right? They're both a mountain species, things like that. So it's not so much their, their true relation, but it's more of the fact that they share some country. Uh, is, is that where you think a lot of that association comes from, from folks who don't understand the, the background or the science like I haven't in the past? Well, that certainly could be part of it, Mark. Um, but there's always been confusion about the mountain goat. Um, when they were first observed, um, I think it was... Um, Mackenzie, when he was exploring Yukon Territory and Northwest Territories in the Mackenzie Mountains, high up um, on a ridge one day, he saw these white animals. And he assumed that they had to be white buffalo because they had a shoulder hump and no one had ever seen a mountain goat. 
So he called them white buffalo. Um, when Cook was exploring coastal British Columbia, he saw mountain goats that the native people pointed out to him. Of course, they had their own name for mountain goats, and he didn't speak the language. He assumed they might have been some kind of a, uh, an animal that he was more familiar with. And then even when Lewis and Clark first saw him over um, on their way to the West Coast in Idaho, they weren't sure what they were. The, the genus Oriamnos, translated again from the Greek, means lamb of the mountain. So there's confusion too. Lamb as though it's a sheep, but it's not. It's a goat. Well, it's a goat antelope. And its offspring aren't called lambs, they're called kids. So there was always confusion about it. And you can certainly see how there'd be confusion where they overlap with doll sheep because they're both white. But, um, mountain goats really just don't look like sheep. They have these long shaggy coats half the year. Their horns are totally different, very simple, primitive horns. Um, and then they have these beautiful flowing pantaloons and beards, and there's just nothing else, maybe except maybe um, a muskox that looks at all like that. Goats, um, as we've talked about, they're fascinating from their appearance, their physical attributes, but certainly one of uh, the appeals to them and what makes them so special uh, in many people's minds is also where they live, the habitat uh, that they call home in a unique way. Uh, and to begin to talk about that, I wanted to pull a quote from your book. And you had wrote, during three decades of field studies of North America's large mammals, the environmental and logistical challenges of none, not deer, elk, moose, pronghorn, bighorn sheep, or bears, compared with those I encountered learning about the mountain goat. The chasms and ramparts, the remoteness and weather are both physically and mentally taxing. Other field biologists have discovered the same, some under the harshest of conditions or across expanses of time. And so that quote pulled from your book really gives some insight into uh, goats. But to elaborate on that, talk a bit about that uniqueness. I mean, we've all heard the phrase goat country. We all know that they inhabit uh, high elevations and steep faces and rough parts of the mountain that are seemingly inhabitable uh, and are inhabitable by many, by many other species. But I would just love to hear more uh, of you elaborate on goat habitat, um, some of maybe the specific ways they use that terrain, why it's to their advantage and how they use it to their advantage um, yeah, cause it's fascinating for sure. When you look at these animals and where and how they live. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a big question and I'd be glad to talk a bit about that. I'll just start off with a simple statement. When I think about mountain goats and their evolutionary history, how they came to be what they are today. Um, what I fall back on is they are both a product and they are captive of natural selection, the niche that they occupy and the form that they've taken. And what I mean by that is because they spend um, 365 days a year in remote 
rugged areas. That's what they're adapted to. Um, they have also not evolved some of the capabilities to live in more what we would think of as more hospitable areas. Um, goats are not good at running. They, um, they're plotters. Um, they can trot along, but they are not fast enough to outrun bears and wolves and coyotes and, uh, or a sprinting mountain lion. That's not what they're about. And so they really are incapable of living in some of the places that we might find mule deer and elk, for example, because they would be um, readily preyed upon by predators that use those areas. Not that there aren't predators where they live, but because they're so unique and because they have, um, through natural selection, been shaped to be able to survive these alpine conditions and steep terrain, that has provided them the capability to avoid predation by mountain lions, by coyotes, um, wolverines, for example. Now there's some places in British Columbia and Alaska where bears and wolves are fairly successful at preying on mountain goats because the goats use these ancient forests. They're in forested areas uh, where the canopies intercept the snow. They wouldn't even be able to survive in the coastal ranges without those giant trees that shelter them and allow them to eke out a living, eating on arboreal lichens that grow on the branches of these trees. But in more of the places that you and I think about, and certainly the places where I've spent more time with goats, um, they're not in forests. There may be trees where they are, but they're not in heavy forests. They're on cliffs and they're on ridge tops and they're on escarpments and so forth. And so the suite of adaptations they have to live there include their feet. They have huge feet for their size. They have a soft convex pad on the bottom, unlike other uh, hoofed animals, that allows their the bottom of their foot to conform to the surface, essentially almost grip it, give them pause attraction on the rocks. And then they have these large dew claw, uh, claws, the vestigial toes on the back of the foot, and they are oversized. And they use those when they're descending steep slopes by lowering their hind quarters, they bring those dew claws into contact with the substrate, whether it's snow or rock or ice, whatever it may be. So that gives them the ability to break, be able to move back and forth, and their toes will spread apart widely. And that gives them uh, an increased capability to, to um, achieve traction on bad terrain. Then they have these huge forequarters built like a buffalo, like Mackenzie envisioned, uh, being a white buffalo up in the Mackenzie range. Um, and they have those big forequarters for plowing through snow and for climbing duties. They use their front quarters for climbing, um, those muscles um, more so than the rear. Uh, they have a low center of gravity and that uh, helps them with balance on thin ledges and steep cliffs. So all of those things and more are, have, have together developed this animal that can survive in places that others can't. The benefits are 
where they survive, there are a few predators and there are a few competitors. So the scant food sources that are there are largely theirs. Um, so in a lot of different ways, mountain goats are specialists for the places they live. Um, winter, summer, they're in these remote rugged areas and steep terrain is sort of the hallmark of where they live. But um, there is one way in which the mountain go goat is very much a generalist and that's in its diet. And that's how it's able to survive in these places is it will eat just about anything. Um, it eats grasses, it eats flowering plants, forbs, it eats twigs and leaves from shrubs. It browses uh, conifer trees. It will um, dig with its claws uh, rhizomes of plants. It will eat certain kinds of ferns and it will scrape um, mosses and lichens off rocks with its teeth. So that is a specialization in its own right that allows it to digestively survive where it is. So interesting. You uh, mentioned in there some of the talks of like forests and, um, you know, their unique abilities to handle different types of terrain and things like that. And one of the things that stood out to me, I was interested, I was looking at some of the research that's been done in Southeast Alaska in terms of mountain goats wintering. And some of what they found there was that goats will winter in different places and elevation bands. And so some goats may stay very high uh, on those windswept, windswept ridges where the snow is going to get blown off and they can access some food sources on the ground, while others may go lower uh, in elevation and get into those trees and that becomes a food source for them. And then they also seem to indicate that the goats that they tracked and that wintered high would then stay there and return high for subsequent winters. And uh, likewise for the goats that went low, that certain goats would return to lower elevations for wintering. And so I found that variance interesting. I was curious if, if there's other patterns like that in other areas, if that may be unique to Southeast Alaska or maybe in your own observation uh, in Montana that you would uh, at least see that consistency of goats and specific goats that would um, use uh, repeated behaviors or use of terrain. It was maybe different from other goats, but were consistent uh, among that goat or that group specifically. Yeah. There's kind of two parts to that. One is um, that you're alluding to is how do goats use their habitat across the continent in the 14 different states and provinces where uh, territories where they occur? And the second one is within a herd, how do they use the habitat around the year and from year to year? So on the first part, um, where goats live dictate how they use the habitat. And all goat habitats aren't the same. Um, I had mentioned like the coastal range of British Columbia and Alaska, where in those Mediterranean climates, where the snow is higher than a house during the winter, um, the goats are very specialized in how they use the habitat in the winter, because so much of it, um, they would be buried in. So they find out crops and so forth, where there's enough food to get by. 
um, within these ancient forests and where um, the canopy intercepts the snow and so it's not quite as deep. And then they have trail systems that they move among these prime pieces of habitat where they're they um, can avoid predators if there should be predators there by getting on steep country, but then they also eat lichens off from the trees. These are boreal lichens and, uh, and browse on the conifer branches. Uh, then as the snow melts, then they're going to move the high country because the best forage uh, in mountain goat habitat during the summer, early fall is going to be as high as you can go. It tends to have higher nutrient content, more nitrogen in particular, and it will be green up there. And green vegetation is always more digestible and has a higher nutrient density than cured vegetation. And lower elevations, um, the vegetation greens up in May and June, and by the time you get to midsummer, it starts to cure out. In uh, the high elevations, you have snow melt. And the green wave is following that snow melt and goats and mountain sheep do the same. They're getting the best nutrition that they can to provide milk for the offspring uh, to recover body condition because they've lost a lot of weight during winter to restore their um, lean muscle mass as well as put on fat for the coming winter. Uh, in other places where mountain goats um, occur, they don't have to deal with that much snow, but the most exposed areas where the foraging is easiest and where energy um, conservation is promoted is where the wind blows off ridges. And so I think of places like in Colorado, there are goats that winter very high in Colorado. And there are likewise places like that in the uh, interior mountains of Alberta and British Columbia, where the the snow is blowing off ridge tops, or at least the sides of ridges, and the goats may be wintering there. And again, they may be moving among small patches of habitat across the big mountain landscape. But generally, their movements are pretty restricted in the winter compared to summer, and that's simply a matter of energy conservation. And because the available winter habitat is pretty restricted. Um, then if we take a mountain goat herd, and I'll just use the goats I studied in the bitterroot as an example, the way they use their habitat is the bitterroots get a lot of snow, 100 inches annually uh, plus up on the high ridges of the bitterroot divide and some of the interfluvial ridges between those canyons. There's no way a goat's going to winter up there, and it's not a particularly windy area compared to some goat ranges. So uh, the goats that are wintering or that are spending the summer there between eight and 10,000 feet, the highest elevations, will drop down to much lower elevations, five, six, seven thousand feet on south facing cliffs. These warm southerly facing cliffs that receive a lot of solar radiation that helps melt the snow. It's also warmer there, just the ambient temperatures are warmer there. South-facing slopes tend to be very steep. And as a result of that, there are always places where the goats can forage relatively easy. And they move around on these cliffs by traveling ledges, up rock, out rock, um, up rock outcrops. 
and uh, finding what food they can. Um, the other advantage of being on those cliffs is that they have high snow shedding potential, meaning the, the snow is either blown off when the wind does blow because it's steep enough, it blows off the, those cliffs or it avalanches off, which is both a blessing and a curse for mountain goats. But that's how they would use um, the habitat there. And then the, the nannies will have their young on the winter range in most cases in late May, early June. And after the kids uh, are 10, 14 days old, um, they truck them back up onto the high country to join other goats up there. And uh, we'll spend from uh, June through sometime in October, generally into November, maybe in the high country before they migrate back down. The goats I studied and goats in most places in native herds are highly faithful to their summer and winter ranges, even using sometimes the same migratory pathways. That's a, an important uh, behavioral feature of mountain goats is this tremendous fidelity they have to their seasonal ranges and how they use it. Uh, even in the Bitterroots, I would see they would use the same bed sites on cliffs uh, year after year, day after day, week after week, prime places where they felt secure uh, from predators, places that um, other goats had rested for generations. So that kind of gets at both sides of that how they use habitat across the continent, but also how an individual goat uses it uh, on a yearly basis and uh, from year to year. Yeah, great. Thinking of uh, the cycle of the year dynamics to how they move leads me to think about their social dynamics, uh, how goats may interact, how that may change through different times of year, uh, Billy-nanny relations, uh, things of that sort. So again, a big topic I know, but if you can kind of speak to that from a high level, um, getting into you know maybe their separation, when they may come together for breeding seasons and how they may interact outside of that or if they do at all. Uh, I'd love to hear more about that. Most places mountain goats exist in, um, in relatively specific, sparsely pop they're they're relatively sparsely populated you don't find high density of goats in most places where they live uh, because the habitat doesn't permit it especially in the winter i mean their food is i compared it to snacks on narrow shelves um, and there's high competition for that food in the in the depths of winter and because there's high competition for that food um, they've evolved a social hierarchy where the, the bigger, older goats tend to be dominant over the younger, smaller goats. Um, uh, that dominance hierarchy is ruled by adult nannies. They live in a matrilineal society. Nannies rule, billies don't. But in fact, in winter, a lot of times the billies aren't even with the nannies. They are wintering in other areas. Uh, singly or maybe in very tiny bachelor groups. Um, although they're dealing with uh, more snow in some of those sort of marginal areas, 
uh, um, on, say, a south-facing mountainside, um, there's probably going to be more forage there. And they are bigger and more powerful and can paw for it and get that food. The nannies, they're more interested in being in places where there's security, out on the cliffs. Um, that's where they're secure, but more importantly, their kids are secure and they can better protect them should there be a mountain lion in the area um, or a wolverine. So there's sort of this partitioning of the habitat in the wintertime. Um, that's less obvious in the summer when food is plentiful in the high country, in the surf basins and on the ridges. Then um, goats that in the winter might have average group sizes on the winter range of two or three animals will be in larger groups off and on, but it's highly dynamic in the summer. You might find a nanny and a kid by herself and two days later, she's with a group of eight other goats uh, and they're moving around, finding the best foraging in that high country. Um, so the social dynamics, again, are sort of dictated by the habitat that's available to them and how they can best use it and survive and raise their young. Uh, the dominance hierarchy, um, as I mentioned, it's ruled by nannies, matrilineal. And as nannies get to be older, they grow larger. Goats are really slow to achieve both um, sexual maturity and uh, maximum body size. Uh, goats won't reach your maximum body size, billies and nannies, uh, and billies even a little bit later, until they're five, six years old. They continue to grow some. And we know with a lot of other ungulates, hooked animals, um, body size is achieved earlier in life than that. And from a reproductive standpoint, most nannies never reproduce until they're three to five years old <clears throat> to have their first kid, which is very late. I mean, deer reproduce at a year and a half. Elk can reproduce at a year and a half. Um, so that's another life history characteristic that is so unique to mountain goats. And because of that, they have low productivity. And because of where they live, they tend to have highly or fairly high mortality of, of the young um, kids. Oh, maybe a third of them won't make it to see their first birthday. And the second highest mortality by age class is in yearlings because they're still growing and they can be only 70, 80, 90 pounds going into their second winter. So all of those things play into then the behavior of <clears throat> nannies being really doting mothers, uh, protecting these kids. The kids stay with them through a whole year of their life, the first year. And if a nanny doesn't reproduce um, that next spring, a kid may continue to stay with the nanny into, oops, I'm just looking out the window here and I see a cow moose out my, oh, that's out awesome. my uh, creek bottom. Sorry. Um, and, and so they have a, a, a pretty tight bond between the nanny and the kid. There are, the, there are really no other close bonds in goat society. It's not to say they don't recognize, nannies don't recognize previous offspring, and they may tolerate them more in close contact, say on a ledge and allow them to feed there too. But um, when nannies feel pressed, 
for their personal space of six to eight feet around them by another goat, they will become aggressive. And some of that aggression is simply um, non-contact where they're giving visual displays, threats, body posture and so forth, which limits the chance for injurious um, contact between them. But they will do horn thrusts if, if, um, if the visual threats don't work. And watching goats, um, especially in the winter, but also in the summer, there is constant interaction and displays and threats between animals. And that serves to protect your space and whatever resource you may have there, whether it's a bedding site or food, but it's also to reinforce your social rank. And then lower goats may be testing ones that are just a little bit older and bigger because the goal is always to move up on the ladder to be at a higher status. So constantly there's interaction between goats, more than in any other hoofed animal um, on the continent. The mortality that you mentioned and potentially uh, kind of, I think you believe uh, you mentioned that a one third die off among the young. Maybe you can't say, but I would assume that's a combination of factors of predation from animals of as you mentioned, heading into winter and lower body size. And so just kind of their ability to, 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 to tolerate the conditions. Um, obviously, they're just in very dangerous country. Falls do happen. Avalanches can kill goats, things like that. But uh, is it just a combination of factors, at least among those early years, that could lead to mortality? Or is there kind of one dominant cause there? It depends upon where goats live. Um, in some places, predation is just minimal because there aren't many large predators. Um, their numbers were reduced, um, you know, a century or more ago, have not recovered, um, and people don't want them to recover. So in some places where uh, goats occur, there are very low numbers of mountain lions, even though that their numbers are recovering continentally, um, substantially from what they were. Um, but we can envision places where there are no wolves, where there used to be wolves, and yet there are mountain goats, and places where bear densities are variable. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, in some places, bears can be effective predators on goats, but across much of the range, that's not true. Um, wolverines on occasion will attack goats, but wolverine numbers are incredibly small. In the lower 48, there are probably only 300 wolverines right now. Um, and the only other significant predators that come to mind are um, the golden eagle, which can be an effective predator on kid goats for maybe their first week or so of life. And the way a, a, an eagle pulls that off is they're soaring, looking at the cliffs, watching the cliffs, um, whether it's to find a ground squirrel or, a, or some other typical prey. But when the kids are born, um, I suspect some eagles will pay special attention to that because what they can do is uh, dive bomb and bat a kid off a cliff and then wherever it falls, they can then feed on it. Um, kids are six or seven pounds when they're born. 
Uh, an eagle could pick up a kid and carry it off, but a lot of times they may not be able to. And so a more likely tactic is to try and bat them off cliffs. To counter that, nannies have figured this out over generations. What they do is when an eagle is soaring in the area, they just stand over the top of their kid. And I'm sure there's signals between the nanny and the kid, verbally or non-verbally, and goats are very patient animals. She will simply just stand there. And uh, it's sort of like saying to the eagle, do you want a piece of me? And threaten it with those nine or 10 inch uh, stilettos that she has on the top of her head. And that sort of ends that. So eagles are generally uh, not gonna be very effective predators. Maybe with a first time mother, they would have a better chance, but uh, Predation probably is so variable across the range that you can't make a general statement. Um, other causes of mortality, goats seem to have, seem to be pretty thrifty. They have pretty well-developed immune systems and disease has not at least been documented as a significant uh, mortality factor for, for goats across North America. It's really, um, the mountain itself that represents the greatest mortality threat to mountain goats. And that's both in terms of uh, limited food in really bad winters. And really that, that has more to do with the duration of winter rather than how severe it might be because goats are highly adapted to deal with the cold and wind um, in the places they live. But if winter strings out for six months or seven months rather than five months, then they begin depleting more of their fat reserves and lean body mass than they can afford. And so starvation can become a problem, especially for these young animals, the kids and yearlings that don't have the energy reserves of bigger animals. The other reason why the mountain itself represents the single largest mortality source for a lot of goats is because of falls, climbing accidents. And when you spend 365 days on steep country, country as steep as a cow's face, you're gonna occasionally make a mistake. And so um, there's plenty of documentation of goats falling and either injuring or killing themselves. And then the other factor that I alluded to earlier are avalanches late winter and spring, which can sweep goats off mountainsides. So that kind of covers all of the factors that play into who doesn't make it through uh, a goat year. Mortality is gonna be far less um, once the goats are off those steep cliffs up on summer fall range. Bruce, this has been so good. And I have uh, more questions than we have time today, but I wanna make sure we talk about as we wrap up here, uh, what's current with mountain goats? Meaning, what does their current population look like? Uh, what are their numbers trending? So I'm sure that that's probably variable based on the area. There's areas where they may be increasing or declining. Um, and then from the conservation perspective, uh, understanding what does conservation and promotion of mountain goats look like today um, and what can be done to kind of support those populations that do exist. So I know that's a, a lot to throw at you in one, but just 
really want to highlight where goats at today and what does the future of goats look like uh, with the variables at play. Do we have 20 minutes? <laughs> if it takes 20 <laughs> minutes to answer the question, you have it. Let's go. <laughs> well, uh, across the continent, there are about, and about is the operative word here, there are about 110,000 mountain goats. Mountain goat populations are extremely hard to survey. It's not only logistically difficult, but it's very expensive. Um, you can't send a biologist and a graduate student uh, snowshoeing or skiing and every gash and every mountain range and, and try and get an estimate on an annual basis of mountain goats. Some populations are rarely surveyed. Some, you know, until maybe the last three, four decades weren't surveyed at all. Um, most surveys of mountain goats, because of those reasons, the logistics and the cost um, of trying to get someone in there, even if you had people to do that, that were qualified and, and actually wanted to, um, most are surveyed by aircraft, uh, particularly helicopters. Um, mountain goats don't like helicopters. Uh, they kind of freak out sometimes when a helicopter approaches. It's one of the issues that's a challenge for goat managers with um, helicopters being used more and more for seismic work and for energy development, uh, helicopter logging, uh, recreationally for heli-skiing and heli-hiking. All of those things uh, create conflicts with mountain goats. They become stressed. They may leave portions of their range. Um, the stress can lead to depressed immune response to disease pathogens, all of those sorts of things. Essentially, helicopters can represent predators to a mountain goat. I don't know if they see them as some roaring eagle descending on them or an airborne avalanche or what the heck they think it is, but they don't like helicopters. Uh, they don't even habituate to them very well the way they would to fixed-wing aircraft that just large gnat buzzing above them. Helicopters are different. So I didn't mean to go on too much about this, but um, it's sort of a conundrum that is the only practical way to survey mountain goats. And so managers are sensitive to that and they don't do excessive numbers of helicopter surveys, not just because it's expensive, but in appreciation of um, how goats respond to those, those uh, flights. Um, as a result, we, we just have a good idea, but not a very uh, accurate one, probably, of how many goats there are. About half of those 110,000 goats live in British Columbia. That's, that's ground zero for mountain goats, the province of British Columbia. Uh, another quarter live in Alaska, where you're going to be going hunting, I understand. Mm -hmm. And then the remainder live elsewhere. Uh, there's a total of um, 10 states and four Canadian provinces and territories where there's mountain goats. Six of those states, um, the goats are all introduced. There weren't native populations there until they were introduced starting in the 1920s, I think is the earliest introductions anywhere. So those states are Oregon, Nevada, Utah, Colorado, South Dakota, and then goats that were 
transplanted uh, in southern Montana and eastern Idaho have pioneered into Wyoming. That's the sixth state with non-native goats. Um, the population across the continent is probably stable to declining right now. Um, back in the 20th century, there were major declines in mountain goat populations. I spent a lot of time uh, retracing that history of goats in Life on the Rocks, if people are interested. Uh, I walked them through that, as you know, Mark, and, and talk about why that happened. Mostly it's their vulnerability to when areas are opened up by roads to um, motorized vehicles coming in, making hunting and poaching easier. And in combination with managers not understanding before how different goats are and how they can't be managed like other big game species because of their unique social biology, population biology and behavior. And that would be another half hour if we we're gonna talk about that. But it's, but it's complex enough that managers and biologists didn't really understand mountain goats very well until probably starting in the 70s with a lot more research on the animals. So that's kind of what's happening across the continent. Um, you know, as far as what mountain goats need now for their conservation and management, more than anything, we need to learn what we don't know. And let me just give you some examples. We need to know why after hunting is relaxed or removed from a small population, why they often don't recover, or if they do so very slowly. And there are many places in Southern BC, Alberta, Montana, Washington, Idaho, where native populations were truly over harvested during the 20th century. That's, uh, that's commonly known now. We know why it happened. And we knew that harvests needed to be far more conservative than they were, which is the way uh, management has moved. But we don't understand why when you remove the harvest, why populations tend to be slow to recover, and some don't. That includes the Bitterroot, where I worked. The population there is probably a third now of what it was when I studied goats there in the 1970s. When I studied goats there in the 70s, there were 75 either sex permits in hunting unit 240 in my study area. Today, there's one. And, um, that is typical of what's happened across Western Montana. A uh, number of goat permits in the 60s were 700 to 1100 annually in the native goat populations. Now there are eight. So we're talking huge reductions in hunter opportunity because the populations are so much smaller in some of these places than they used to be. Um, we also don't know why in Montana, why <clears throat> native populations are in decline or at least have stabilized at low levels, whereas introduced populations seem to be doing pretty well with some exceptions. Um, we just don't understand that very well yet. Um, we don't know what all the limiting factors are, including what are the primary causes of mortality in some herds and why they might have low productivity. In other words, what happens in one goat population or one state, you can't necessarily apply to another. It's going to be um, very herd or at least regionally dependent. Um, 
a big one, a huge one is we don't know how climate change is currently impacting goats and how it's likely to accelerate its effects on mountain goats. Wish we had more time. I'd like to talk about what we knew, do know about that, but just I'll leave it that climate change is huge for mountain goats and other alpine species because the, the global climate is warming twice as fast at high latitudes and high altitudes as it is on average around the globe. Things are changing really quickly up there. And as a result, the species that live there, plants and animals, have to change more rapidly. Um, we know little about the effects of small population sizes on perform performance and viability of goat populations. This gets into goats living in these small groups, small population sizes, a lot of places. There's only 50 goats living in a mountain range, small mountain range, which could lead to inbreeding depression because there's no gene flow and they are poor colonizers. And then we also need improved techniques for surveying goats and to determine how we can account for the goats that we don't see so we have a better real-time estimate of how many goats live in a mountain range. Those are all huge challenges to try and not only manage goats better, but hopefully to keep them around for the next 50, 100, 200 years. Hmm. It's uh, they're fascinating. Uh, it's just it, as I've learned about them more and more, uh, I appreciate them more. And then it's interesting to hear that even um, with the vast experience that you personally have, there's still so many unknowns and unique uh, factors to mountain goats and potentially, as you just mentioned, mountain goats in one area versus another and uh, yeah, I just find them fascinating from, from so many perspectives, but, uh, Bruce truly thank you for the time today. Uh, and then, uh, just personally, thank you for all of the information, uh, that you've even shared in your books, uh, especially life on the rocks, which again, I've thoroughly enjoyed, uh, as I let you go today, uh, just wanted to share, you do have a website, Bruce. BruceSmithWildlife.com, uh, but any other resources that you would point folks to if they want to maybe check out your books or learn more um, about goats or other projects that you have in the works? You know, the website's the best place to start. And if I just can take a minute here, um, maybe what goats need more than anything is a vocal following. Um, people that, more and more people that advocate on their behalf for all the, the not just consumptive uses, the hunting, which is um, uh, a valid use of goats where populations can um, handle hunting. Um, I hunted goats myself way back in the 1970s and it was an amazing experience, um, but they have so many non-consumptive values for observation, nature study, photography. People are just fascinated when they get a chance to see them. I've seen this time and time again, especially in national parks. They're mesmerized by goats. Um, and to try and reach more people, I think I mentioned to you when we talked in an earlier conversation, Mark, <clears throat> my latest book project was a novel that came out the end of last year. Uh, it's a children's novel. 
It's for middle grade kids, seven to 10, actually seven to 12 probably, although um, it's very um, enjoyable for adults as well. The title of it is Legend Keepers, and it's the first in a series. Uh, the first book is The Chosen One, and the protagonist, uh, the star of the story is Buddy, who's an orphan mountain goat kid, who uh, is orphaned when she's three days old, uh, searching for her mother. She's rescued by a wizardly raven um, who helps her find Nanny, who just lost her own kid. And then Buddy soon discovers she has a destiny to save her band of goats from a great peril foretold in an ancient legend. And uh, woven within this story about the way she deals with challenges in her life, overcoming loss, finding the importance of friendship and family. Um, woven throughout it is a environmental subtext about climate change and how that's driving um, what's happening in the Alpine and the importance of it to her to carry out this destiny of hers. Awesome. Well, once again, that's uh, Bruce, uh, sorry, BruceSmithWildlife.com, where you can check out, uh, I believe, even a sample of that new book, a, a teaser to it, uh, and then more information. So once again, Bruce, thank you for the time you shared today and all of the knowledge you've shared from your decades of experience. Well, thank you, Mark, for the opportunity to talk to your audience. Well, that is a wrap on this episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. One thing I failed to mention in the introduction is that I actually wrote an article uh, that somewhat went along with this episode. It's part of the Seek Adventure series where I've been documenting uh, kind of the journey and my process leading up to the mountain goat that I have planned for this fall. And so if you want to check out the latest installment of that, check out the link in the show description. And once again, guys, we appreciate you sharing your questions, comments, and feedback for the show. And you can do that by sending us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com at any time. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app to receive future episodes automatically and share the show with a friend who may enjoy it as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.